episode two of Upstate View, a podcast highlighting local entrepreneurs, creatives, doers, content creators, artists, and much more. Basically anyone that could be listed on the directory site I just put out. Today's guest is a good friend of mine, Mr. Pat Fricola, who was a registered nurse for a nursing home in Rome, New York. Um, I'm going to let Pat talk a little bit more about his credentials and what he does at the nursing home. So I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse since May of 2015. Uh, my latest position is the infection preventionist and the staff educator, staff development coordinator. Uh, so anything that has to do with infectious disease processes, communicable diseases, uh, as well as, you know, like I said, staff education development. But Pat's also um, recently, well, it's been probably over a year now, started a podcast kind of nursing content brand called Nurse Nation Media. Has it been a year? How long has it been? Uh, yeah, it's been over a year. It's actually it's actually coming up close to almost a year since we've actually released an episode. Um, but that's that's a whole other story. It's been almost oh, a year. it's been a year since you released the first episode. No, from like my latest like episode nine. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Time well, is... it started it started just as like kind of like a sociological study on social media. Like if I start something just from scratch, like not involving any of the people that I already follow on social media, not involving, you know, trying to give myself shout outs on my page with my followers I already have on personal accounts. It was like, okay, what does it take to build something just from the ground up? Like, you know, is there a way to beat the algorithm by just putting in, you know, just right here on this one profile? Just straight organic growth by hashtags, following people, and exactly. just engaging with like-minded yeah. people. So it started off that way. And then I released some of the episodes and I wanted to get into, it originally was, you know, one of the biggest things that you learn as a nurse is education, the education of you know, your residents, your patients. Evidence-based practice shows that the more educated somebody is about something that's going on with them or something that's about to happen with them, the better your outcomes are. So my first idea, and go back to the first episode, this is me kind of in the car getting a rundown of what I wanted to do, what the vision was. It was trying to get nurses in from all different aspects of healthcare to kind of explain what they do, why they do what they do, and you know what people could expect if they're ever in that position or need that type of care. Um, and then I kind of realized I don't really like talking to people. Not that I don't like talking to people, but sometimes if having like those full-blown conversations, like it's to me, I kind of get bored with that kind of stuff. So if I'm getting bored with it, I'm not just going to put it out there and hope that someone else isn't going to be bored with it. Um, so I kind of wanted to like tailor it and kind of take it in a different direction. And then just things with work and personal life just kind of started going crazy and it just wasn't a lot. I didn't have a lot of time to actually create content for the podcast side, but it's turned into something more than just you know, like podcasts and social media. I'm using more of like the Twitter side of the social media, of the Nurse Nation media. There's no, what I'm looking for, there's no more like traditional news outlets. There's no more traditional media. Like it's now, you know, legacy media. Twitter in and of itself, at least for my uses, is just a running timeline of just news. That's where I get all my news updates. I mean, you know, you have your verified people, you know who you can trust, you know, people are calling people out for fact checks all the time on Twitter, which is always nice, you know, it sparks conversation. Um, but that's kind of where I've been focusing more of the, like on the Twitter side of the social media of the content stuff. Not like I'm producing content, but I've been using it to, uh, kind of keep tabs on what other places are doing for like their infection control, all this corona stuff going on. Uh, 
oh, there's a lot of different uh, nurse educators that kind of put out a lot of content about how they uh, approach different type of education sessions or how they increase their numbers of people actually attending their, their uh, education sessions within facilities. Um, a lot of things, at least, at least it, it gives you, what I be using for is it gives you a landscape of the occupation, not just locally. Because I mean, just like, just like social media um, in life when you've just kind of just been in one area of healthcare for a long extent of time, you kind of see everything in a vacuum. So it's interesting to see all the other stuff going on like all around, all around the country, all around the world. Like the uh, staffing crisis situation that was kind of going around all last year. I mean, it's still an ongoing thing, but like for us, like we're kind of in a staffing crisis. And I'm not saying like my facility person, I'm saying like our whole region is in a staffing crisis because there's more, you know, there's more openings than there are nurses that can fill them. Where, so, so to me, I'm like, well, why the hell are these people freaking out when it's like, okay, well, I tell some people at work all the time, like, oh, you guys don't bring more aids, we need more aids. All right, well, do you look outside right now? Is there a long line of people with resumes that we can bring in? No, like, so there's just not enough people to fill these positions. Where, once I started getting involved in like the actual medical community on Twitter, the nursing community on Twitter, you start to see that there actually are facilities outside of this area, all around the country, that are just refusing to hire people based on the bottom line. So, you know, if I didn't know that, I could change my whole perspective on the safe staffing and the staffing. I mean, a lot of the concepts of the staffing ratios I still disagree with, but in general terms, it kind of just molded my perspective into something different because, you know, I really was living in just this central New York vacuum of what the nursing, you know, kind of world was. So, not that I've wanted to get away from content, I just haven't had a lot of time to build that content, but the connections and the acquaintances that I've met via you know, Nurse Nation Media, whether it be Instagram or Twitter, has really helped to mold my practice and kind of enhance my practice, actually. Yeah, so you've used the podcast and the nursing content brand to really get a foot into a bunch of different circles and kind of build community and get a more holistic view of nursing around the country. Yeah, know? and like I like, I wanted to, after those first nine episodes, that were mostly all interviews of people and different types of individuals in healthcare. Like, you know, we had PT Journeys, Julian Sean on talking about the physical therapy aspect. I've had, um, uh, oh man, I'm like, oh, Melanie, she was from Colorado. She was from public health. Um, I had uh, her, her Twitter handles, ReapRN Kelly. Uh, she's a clinical specialist down in Carolina. So it was nice and interesting to get all those different viewpoints. But then I kind of wanted to, I had this idea of doing it in like seasons. So like season one, I was gonna have that episode one through nine, just the introductory, introductory season, you know, most of just interviews, just trying to get your feet off the ground. And then my next idea, my next season was taking the information that the United States Army, National Guard, how they train their field medics, and kind of breaking that down and comparing it to how nurses in critical care settings are kind of trained. Because to me, like having a conversation with Waz, you know, one of our mutual friends, uh, the voodoo medic, Dr. Waz, the National Guard medic, and when he came back from overseas and all of his credentials that he's you know, accumulated through his army career, he's, he's able to perform more procedures and more interventions than I have ever or in my setting now will ever do. And he can come out and not even be like an LPN which to me is kind of disgraceful. Like this guy is over, you know, plugging bullet wounds with his thumb and, you know, essentially prescribing these medications out on the field based on these charts and then he can come back and he can't even be, you know, an LPN. So there's zero correlation between the credentials and the military 
rankings or hierarchy and a civilian equivalent job. The way he explained it to me was that you you can leave with almost like a report card, like a tra- obviously a transcript, like anywhere else. But those like credits, there's only like a select amount of credits that apply to some sort of like nursing curriculum. So he'd have to go to school again, whether it be LPN or RN, for like the full two years, which is kind of crazy. So I would imagine that discourages a lot of ex-military. I would assume so, but I mean, there's a lot of questions that come with that. So that was what my next season was going to be, like breaking that down, having a conversation with him. You know, how do you start to, you know, build, how do you bridge that gap? Well, how do we get these people who are, have all of this training to be able to have some sort of bridge program to get them into the medical field a little bit sooner at a position where they're doing things similar to what they were doing out in the field because to me it's just a waste of time like why would you train this person to essentially be you know the 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 most emergency of emergency room nurses bullets flying over your head you got all this stuff going on and then you come back oh hey you still have to do your you know you still have to get a bachelor's <laughs> to be an rn it's like what it's crazy yeah if you could make it in combat you could probably make it in a doctor's office exactly. right? or where we are now in a nursing yeah. home um, but that was kind of where I wanted to bring the direction to, and then you know, football season started in the fall, and then new job in the in the winter time, and then now it's the spring with the coronavirus going on, and it's been kind of crazy. So no, it's understandable. Obviously, a bunch of different priorities get get out of putting out content. And then I had this other great idea where I was listening to I was it Rogan at first? It may have been, but they were talking about like all these like old like secret CIA projects in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s that were all uncovered by like Rockefeller and all these other different groups. Um, and I wanted to get into the like ethical questions that came into that, like from the medical side of like doing all these random like drug experiments on people like unbeknownst. And I started coming up with that, I started coming up with like scripts and things I wanted to actually put out there as content for Nation Media, and then all this Corona stuff happened. And then I was thinking, well, you know what? Let me take what New York State, upstate New York, long-term care setting, how we're combating Corona, all our guidelines, how they're constantly changing, giving a timeline, like that's interesting, right? And then literally you go to work and it's all Corona. You come home, it's all Corona. The whole world shut down because of Corona. It's like, you know what? I don't want to talk about Corona and have to put stuff out about coronavirus anymore. So naturally I'm going to ask you a few questions about Corona here. Okay. Uh, I'll do my. How has the coronavirus affected your day-to-day in your facility, and have you guys felt any of the heavy repercussions of the issues that people are experiencing all across the country? Well, I think if anyone says that they're not feeling the effects, they're obviously lying at this point, because it's not only just affecting the healthcare workers, but like I said before, the world's at a standstill, so it's affecting everybody. But um, it was very interesting, the timeline of my new roles and, and how this all kind of lined up. So around Christmas time, I left the uh, double weekend supervisor position to take on the education and the infection control aspects of the nursing home. Um, but I really took it because I loved the education part of it and a majority of the education is doing this our CNA classes and I love taking people that you know either want to better their lives or take a step in the medical direction and becoming a CNA is like that first step for a lot of people and it's an important step for a lot of people. Uh, so just being able to kind of educate people, make them you know good CNAs and so I started that out in December. We started a class in beginning of, it was supposed to be January. We started in the beginning of February. Um, was it February? No, I think we started actually the last week of January. Yeah, we started last week of January. So I think the second week, or the third week was my birthday week, and that was the seventh. So we started like the last week of January. And a lot of those three weeks building up to that was just me preparing for this. And obviously, this, the basic skills that CNA could do you're taught those in nursing school. So to me, it was like, oh, you know, this is gonna be easy. But then when you actually look at the curriculum that's provided to you, it's like, oh, damn, like, 
if I was put on the spot right now, like just like anything, you know, you get a little nervous. So I took those three weeks and really just wanted to hammer the material down, wanted to get the skills down pat, wanted to find those little nuances, try to make things a little bit easier for people when I'm trying to educate people. So my first three weeks were mostly on the education aspect. Um, and then we finished that class up March 9th and literally the days after that, it was all coronavirus. So then it went from just the education aspect the infection control aspect. So before it would just be kind of like surveying, um, you know, comparing your baseline of infectious diseases in the nursing home from previous years to what you have now and you know reporting certain things and doing certain you know, interventions based on a lot of the statistics that are involved in, in your home. And then it's, I had never had a set routine for the infection prevention side of my job responsibilities. Um, it was really once I got out of the education aspect those first few weeks, my infection control aspect was just all corona. So, I mean, we went from, and it was kind of you know, silly at me at the beginning too, like I kind of went from, eh, this kind of just be something like, this is gonna be something like Ebola. Like we're gonna have this huge scare, like everyone's gonna be educated on all this stuff, we're gonna put in all these interventions, and then it's never gonna hit us. Like we're getting all this information from China. Like when is China ever, you know, truthful with anything that they're giving out to us? And then as it kind of grew, I remember there was one day where Literally, it got so bad that we went from, okay, the new guidelines are schedule visitation time, screen people coming in, visitors, family, wearing the masks, educating on the hand hygiene. And then literally, that was 9 o'clock in the morning. By noon, it was closing doors for all visitors. So, I mean, everything happened kind of so fast. And that was early March, first or second week of March? The date that sticks out in my head is March 17th, and I don't know if that's because that was the official day that we closed off all visitation, or if it was a few days before that. Um, but for some reason, like March 17th sticks out in my yeah, head. Yeah, no, that, that, that day makes sense. That might, that might have been the day where we were like, okay, visitors come now. And every time you change a policy, you have to send out a letter, you have to let all the residents know. They have to send out a letter to all the family members. So we had this letter drafted up, we sent it out in the mail in the morning, about, hey, these are going to be our, our changed, our revised visitation schedules and policies based on what's going on with Corona. And then literally three hours later, it was actually just kidding, disregard that mail because now we're closed down for everything. They got to make phone calls to everyone, everyone's freaking out. But so we have no visitation. Um, obviously, we have to wear a mask inside the nursing home. Uh, every time you walk into the building for your shift, you have to come in through this our side entrance, which leads right to the nursing office. You have to get checked in, get your temperature taken, you get asked about all the questions about all the different symptoms. Um, and then if you're cleared from that point, you can go to work. Uh, so that's just like the start of the day. That's how it's kind of changed everyone's kind of morning routines. So obviously it makes sense to take all those steps, but knowing that the coronavirus could lie dormant, you could be non-symptomatic for 10 days to two weeks. Is that really, I guess, getting the job done? Like what? So anytime that anyone fails the that preliminary assessment when they first walk in. Automatically, seven days out of work. It used to be 14 days. Um, but then, because of the shortages of staffing, and that's the problem with New York State, is that everything that affects the city ends up affecting upstate. So when they were sending out all their workers for 14-day quarantines, when they were such short you know, staffing that they were gonna come and kind of like, okay, well, we gotta change this. It's gonna be seven days. So then, anyone that has like any of those symptoms, whether it be cough, sore throat, any respiratory symptom, even a temp, and they drop regulations for temps. Temp used to be anything above or equal to 100.5, now it's 100 even. Like you can't come to work for seven days, no matter, even if it's, you know, your heat was blasting in your car, or 
even at first, at first it was if you have a smoker's cough, you had to be out for seven days until your doctor could say, okay, here's a note that's saying, no, it's a smoker's cough. Thankfully, they kind of loosened that up and was like, okay, as a nurse, you can use your better judgment and you can actually say, oh, well, this person has had a cough. That's why every time we ask a question now, it's, do you have any new cough? We get a lot of smokers. So it's like, you know, do you have any new cough? So seven days automatically. Any people, uh, new admissions that come in from the hospital, whether they've been tested or not, so they can come with a negative test three days ago, automatically on 14 day isolation, droplet isolation. So that means gown, glove, mask, anytime you walk into the room, wearing the mask anyway, so that's not a big deal, but anytime they come out of the room, have to have a mask on. If someone goes out to an appointment that they have to go to, we started canceling all the appointments that could be rescheduled, but if someone has to go to an appointment like dialysis, for example, that clock restarts every time they go out to an appointment because you don't know who they've been exposed to. They go into a private room, they're in isolation precaution, um, and then anyone in the facility that has um, some sort of abnormal vital sign or new sign of respiratory, either infection or disease process that can't be explained by something else. So if you have someone that has COPD and a cough, like we're not gonna put them on drought precaution because they've had a chronic cough or chronic COPD. But if you have someone that all of a sudden, you know, spikes a temp and now they have a cough, okay, whoa, you gotta go into an isolation room, 14 days, and then we're monitoring you from there. Uh, so that's kind of the, a lot of the new, obviously new policy that we put into place. How have you, what, how have you had to deal with the, I guess, resident responses to this? Is there, has this gone over, have these changes gone over smoothly? Have people been upset about this? Are people really starting to get antsy to see their families? A lot of our long-term care aren't as oriented, you know? So do they kind of grasp what's happening? Hard to tell. Uh, obviously you have that first transition period, but we never really had a lot of issues. You know, a lot of times you get people with dementia and you know things that affect their their mental capabilities, their mental capacity. Any sort of change out of normal routine, you start to see behaviors. You start to see some sort of whether it be an aggressive behavior, some sort of abnormal behavior from their obviously from the norm. Um, but we didn't really see a lot of that. Actually, we started doing the window visits, and we found that a lot of our residents are actually being more upset when they have the window visits than when they have no visits at all, when it's just like kind of a phone call or a FaceTime, just because it's it's right there, you know, the, like your, your wife's right there. You wanna be able to hug her, kiss her, see her. Um, but we haven't had too many complaints on the resident side, and a lot of the people that we're getting in for new admissions that are oriented understand. Um, knock on wood, and, and I mean, it's, it's an eventual you know, inevitability, but as of right now, we haven't had anybody that has been COVID positive. Um, one of the reasons for that is, you know, they, they put out the federal mandate that you can't deny anybody just because they're COVID positive from into a nursing home, which to me was strange because the old elderly are, you know, the number one at-risk population. But then again, you can't, you know, overcrowd hospitals. So, you know, I understand on that aspect. But our corporate actually put out a, you know, a corporate guideline um, that's saying that certain facilities, based on the amount of beds that they have, based on their capacity, um, the larger facilities will be getting the COVID positive, the smaller facilities, they'll try to keep those away for new admissions. Um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with like the PPE numbers. Like they're only given a certain amount of PPE, so instead of spreading it across your 20 facilities, you know, based on what your patient population is, divert all of your COVID positive people you're gonna be getting into, you know, a few select facilities, then you can, you know, increase those PPE numbers of those facilities, kind of, you know, spread it out a little bit more um, easier that way. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around the coronavirus? Uh, you, you're obviously someone that has a little more insight into the way the disease actually works and being, being in the healthcare field would probably have a better analysis than most average people would. Uh, 
In the beginning, in March, there was obviously a lot of misconceptions, but I think that's only because the regulatory bodies that are giving us the guidelines didn't have as much information. But now that it's been out there for, you know, what, what are we, eight weeks, six, seven, eight weeks, um, a lot of those myths have been debunked. Um, I mean, every once in a while now you get, you know, what social media flips people's words into or how to treat different things and, you know, people actually trying them. So those are obviously misconceptions. But um, to say that there's a lot of misinformation where people don't know, you know, the basics of the, of the disease, we haven't really, you know, had a lot of that issue. Um, you know, there was the big debate in the beginning, is it airborne or is it just something you have to take child precaution for? Now it's just been droplet, I mean, who knows if that's gonna change, but it looks like that's gonna be pretty steadfast. Um, the biggest misconception were, like when we, we had to conserve like surgical masks and N95s. And, you know, when everyone has the mass hysteria of, okay, it could be airborne, we're not sure, and then all the employees are like, oh my God, like they're only getting a surgical mask, we should all be getting N95s, and it's like, and then they're like, oh, we have to use the same mask over and over again until it's soiled or wet because there's something short. This is crazy. Like, I want to work. And it's like, you know, you're putting me at risk. And it's like, you know what? It's actually, you know, the masks aren't to protect you from the virus. I think that's one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people have. The mask is to protect others from you. Because like you mentioned before, like you can be asymptomatic and have the virus. So it's not, we had, like I said before, we have no positives in, in, in the nursing home. So why are they telling us to wear masks? Well, it's not to protect you, the worker. It's to protect the residents because you could be asymptomatic as well, keeping those droplets into you. So yeah, and you're the one actually leaving the facility and coming in every day. Exactly. So, so I think a lot of the, like at least in our facility, the, mis the, the, the misconception was they're not giving us enough PPE to protect ourselves, like in, in just the mask aspect of it. Um, where really it was, it's not really to protect you; it's to protect the residents who haven't been leaving have nothing recorded in, in the home. You're the only one that has potential exposure. Again, it's not to protect you, it's to protect the residents. Uh, so just in my setting, that was the biggest misconception. It seems like everybody and their mother has an opinion on how dangerous COVID really is and are we overreacting, are we underreacting? And the way I look at it is I don't think there's really a baseline to compare any of this against. And I, I would tend to trust the, the experts more so than anybody mm. on something like this until I've been given a compelling reason otherwise. So, you know, I think as long as, as long as we learn from this experience, I'm not really rushing to judgment whether we stayed locked down for too long or too little. I think the most important thing is that we move forward from this and are better prepared so that this doesn't happen again. How do you see this changing the healthcare system and can you see, I guess, tangible things that'll be better in the future as a result of this? That's tough to answer just because I'm not a policymaker and I, and I don't think like a policymaker in that aspect, like national policy or worldwide global policy with certain things. Um, what do I see changing like day-to-day -day life? Like I don't think you'll ever see the plastic shields go down at cash registers. I think we'll always have those now, almost like you know the convenience stores or the corner stores in the city. You'll always have those up there. I mean, not only does it protect you against you know what other people can have, but you know if you have the bulletproof ones like in New York City, it's you know it's also for security as well. Um, so I don't think you'll see that change. Um, I think we'll actually start to move more towards plastic currency than the continued exchange of dollar bills. Um, coins, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's like one of the things, one of the hot topics is, you know, well, we weren't prepared for something like this. So we should have had more tests already. 
it, I'm not someone who was in that room, in that meeting, having those conversations. So I don't like to speculate as to what those conversations were. Like, you know, I don't know what information people who make policies had at the time that certain policies were made. Um, what I do know is that you can't stockpile tests and materials just in case something happens because then you've you know, things have expiration dates like anything so you make the specific corona test you know five years ago because you thought that corona was going to be hitting you know, well you know what happens if it never did now you have five years worth of supplies that are expired in a bunker somewhere um so to say to, to kind of speculate and to say like this is what i think should happen i'm not real comfortable saying that because again like i said i don't have all the information who knows who you can trust anymore with all this information that's why I always tell people, usually from a news outlet, always double check. Not, not like double check, you know, against another news outlet, but you know, read into it more. Like, who's the writer? What are their sources? You know, are these sources credible? Um, that's why I hate when people post all these posts on Facebook when they just read the headline, and it's like, oh my God, Florida's reopening their beaches. I mean, they were closed completely. They reopened them for physical activity. Still on social distancing. Apparently, you're still not supposed to go there. But I don't know to, to say that we we're underprepared. We're not repaired at all. Yeah, we had PPE shortages. Yeah, we didn't have we had a shortage of tests. But again, you know, we we'd been fine all the way up until this point. I mean, the problem is that we were at like a seventy-five year nap between the last crazy pandemic and, and this here now. So, you know, how do you stay prepared, but in a, I guess a, a financially smart way as well? Yeah, I I definitely see your point there. I think. People are very quick to rush to judgment, and obviously a hot topic has been the president and his administration's response to the crisis, and I'm not interested in really taking a side either way. I'm more so just interested in analyzing all the facts objectively and reaching my own conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we've, we tend to sensationalize things and forget that any preparation we may have made you know, in previous years would have come with an associated cost. And people in times of crisis tend to throw that line of thinking out the window and it's just, we should have done this and this and this and without thinking about the, the cause and effect. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, you know, the the effect of better preparedness wouldn't, wouldn't have been worth the associated cost because it probably would have been. But I think that a lot of times these, these issues are a lot more complex than meet the eye. and. Most people don't have any interest in going beneath the surface on those issues. Like, I think that believe whatever you want about President Trump and his administration's response to this, but I don't think that there's really a baseline to evaluate it against. And of course, there are a lot of things you could point to, and I'm not interested in defending one, I guess, political ideology or preserving certain talking points. I just think that nobody really knows as much as they think they do or and nobody really has all a complete picture of all the information to to make these assessments so well, i think the important thing that people forget is that we're dealing with microbes things that you can't see and i think every number and statistic that's thrown at us on a daily basis are all lag numbers so i think things look a little more scary when you're always trying to play catch up so i mean once you found one person that's infected there's going to be two others that, that are going to be infected. So to, to say that we could have contained it when we just had the first you know handful of cases in January, it, I'm a big proponent. Like, what's a hot topic now is this antibody testing. You know, Do people have the coronavirus antibodies showing that they've had the virus in the past? And then from that step, do these antibodies protect you against every single little, you know, you know, uh, RDNA strand uh, against 
uh, against each little coronavirus. But I started looking into it because even before I was saying this had to have been in our country way before we even started making this out to be what it is now in you know February, March, now into April. If you just look at the, and I've done this myself, that's why I kind of, I, I had that speculation, I was like, okay, well, let me do some more research. If you look at just the amount of flights and people coming out of Wuhan, China, every week for the past year, there's been at least three flights from Wuhan directly to San Francisco. 150 people at least a flight, that's 450 people coming from Wuhan you know, every week, just right into San Francisco. So not even counting how many people, how many flights from Italy come into JFK. And Wuhan has direct flights over to JFK. So it's like, you're telling me that they had this disease that they didn't know or have a name for until the new year. So they're going back to October, November, saying, you know, retroactively diagnosing these cases in China. And you're saying now we, we only had six in January. It doesn't really, you know, yeah. just the travel patterns. The, the rate, the, the current averages and what the, the trends and data currently indicate don't match up with that narrative at all. If you were to plug and play some of those numbers back then, just based on the travel volume. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I think people, for some reason, people feel better about themselves when they can cling on to a rigid stance on this. Like everybody's convinced one way or another. And my thing is I just want to know the truth. And I really don't care which side it aligns with politically or you know who might be offended by it i just want to observe all the information and reach my own conclusions and you know you see it all the time on facebook and just the 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 quick reaction culture of we're doing too much we're doing too little this is ridiculous this is an infringement on rights and you know i could understand certain points from any of these arguments mm. but i just think that there's a there's a whole complete picture that most of us are lacking and I don't even feel comfortable speaking on a lot of these things and I feel like I've taken the time to try to understand the bigger picture so to me it's like why do people feel the need to, to rush to these judgments and why do people feel so strongly about these well, convictions actually, they hold? I start to feel bad for our policymakers and politicians now because like Cuomo just released today New York State's run out of money in their unemployment fund and I, I guess apparently they're supposed to be being retroactively refunded by the federal government, but you're stuck between making the best decision for the people health-wise and making that best decision for the people economically as well. So it's like, how do these people, at some point you're gonna be at a place where it's gonna end up being, it's gonna hurt you more in the long run because of the financial impacts of shutting down everything than it would have ever been for the you know the death rate, but it's how do you how do you portray that to people? How do you say you know what we don't care about the deaths because we have to you know keep going economically? Because it, people, I think people are so short term minded. It, it's tough to explain you know the long term repercussions. Yeah, there's no way to concisely aggregate all of the relevant data points. At, you know, and balance out the needs of the economy and the needs of saving individual lives and understanding how many of these lives would have been lost anyway or what, 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 understanding the entirety of the cause and effect chain here. It's really tough for a leader to articulate that and to, you know, be able to deal with some of the associated criticism. And you're always going to have naysayers and people that are going to agree just based on the politics of Governor Cuomo. Like, I've seen Governor Cuomo do some amazing things during this time. And just because he's been a traditional... Uh, liberal Democrat, 
people are just up in arms at everything he says. And I know I see a guy that's working hard and trying his best to save lives and protect people. And some people just want to slander everywhere he says, and much like people do with President Trump. Um, well, and think, that, that's what the, the shitty part about this, everything now turns political this day and age. And the shitty part about this being political is if you go back and look at the timeline, and I'm not saying that I endorse you know one party or person over the other, but if you look at the timeline, we shut down travel, at least from China to and from in January. And if you look at just you know the, the flip side, the, the Democratic side, people like Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer who was saying that was you know that was xenophobic to do, like we shouldn't have done that. And you have people like got Nancy Pelosi who are saying that they should have went out. What was it, the Chinese New Year in January, February? Where they're like, no, you should be out there celebrating. You know, that's now you look back at it, now they're all bashing Trump for the way he reacts to it now. Well, you know, a few months ago you were saying go out there and, and party with the Chinese New Year and closing down transportation was xenophobic. So it's like. Who do you trust? And that's why I hate that it has turned such like a political mess than it is really, you know, here are the straight facts. It's crazy how fast a headline or just a random tweet from somebody that's really not qualified to speak on any of it can escalate to 500,000 retweets and favorites in a, oh, a few hours. And, you know, that contributes to a ton of misinformation being spread. And I'm a huge fan of social media, so I'm not trying to say that that's a bad thing or that's a a net negative for society but I do think often about how the fact that you know when you look back on history in 1920 during the Spanish flu outbreak people didn't even there wasn't even 1918 there wasn't even cable news Uh, you couldn't even there wasn't cable news at that point no right that was pre-world war one so you couldn't even you were basically you you were in the dark you had no idea what was actually going on you tried to take whatever precautions you could you knew that there was a disease going around and you just dealt with it and you moved on but today more than ever everyone's connected everyone can voice an opinion everyone can so there's a lot more potential for different opinions and for i guess different reactions to the policies that policymakers release mm-hmm. so you know one negative opinion or one dissenting thought on a policy could be portrayed in the media as if it's actually thought by millions of people when in reality it's really just a few you know rogue individuals saying something so I've, I think often about how the, the effect of that everyone having a voice on Twitter and everyone being able to put out reactions and what it's done what would this response have looked like 20 years ago compared to now but I, the, the one thing though on the flip side of that that I enjoy about Twitter is that if someone doesn't want to be misquoted or misrepresented in some sort of news article or whatnot, you have the ability to go out there and you know put out exact quotes. Oh, exactly. And so, I, I think about that all the time. Like, I wish more politicians would just turn the camera on themselves, yeah. put up a very direct and articulate response to something, and address it. Because there's obviously falsifications in the mainstream media all the time, and people get misquoted, things get taken out of context. And I wish more people... Uh, President Trump likes to, to go to Twitter to do it a lot, but he's not the most uh, articulate or soft or convincing in the way he does it. But I wish we had some good quality leaders that would speak directly to the people with a you know untainted tone. So I, I and I'm a huge fan of Twitter. I don't I'm not saying any of this to say that it's a bad thing. Oh, no, I, I love Twitter. Who's my favorite social media platform? I think uh, Twitter is a net positive overall and. In saying all this, I think most people, it is a good thing that people have these voices. We're just going to have to learn how to navigate in crises like this. Well, so. the other problem is, too, is that there's always someone, and no matter what the crisis is, there's always someone or group of people that benefit financially from some sort of crisis, whether it be a wartime crisis or this crisis now, healthcare. So, you know, what influence do those people have 
over from policymaking and you know news production and whatnot. No, exactly, and the, especially in an election year, like I don't think some people will stick to the death of it that this is a, a politicized push to make Trump look bad for the election, and the other side will say no, this is very serious. The Republicans are not taking it seriously. They're trying to make it seem like a witch hunt on Trump, and I think that like any sensible person should agree that there's clear political motivation to make Trump look bad here. And I'm not saying that he has done a good or bad job because I really don't know. Um, but I think that you could hold both of those opinions that, you know, this is a very serious thing. And I also think that there, it's obvious that there would be motivation from the opposing party to make it look bad on the the sitting president, right? And I don't think you have to pick one side or the other. It's crazy to me that people really can't hold both of those things to be true. Expanding on that comment, it's crazy that, to me at least, people think, or at least the mass majority of people that I interact with, you you can't have two thoughts. Like, you can't have parallel thoughts. Like, you can't say, okay, this is true, but yet this side of it is also true. Like, you either have to have... It, it, yeah. And I'm trying to come up with you know some sort of um, some sort of analogy or um... no, I think like I've heard certain quotes and I can't even say who who said it, but basically like a, a really intelligent person who has their wits about him can't has the ability to hold two contradicting thoughts in their head without losing their mind, exactly. you know. So and I think I try to to model that in most of my approaches to how I think about things. So it's. It's a, but it's a thing that most people don't do, for sure. Here's a good example. Like, I can, I can understand why, with New York City being the epicenter now of Corona, and all of the guidelines that are put into place statewide, why people are upset with it also affecting upstate. But yet, I also can have that same, you know, thought process of. I understand why it's affecting upstate as much as it's affecting the city. But I mean, some people, like like right now, you either have to be, especially in New York, you are either, you know, against Cuomo saying that it should only be, like, this stuff should only be in New York City or, you know, Southern Tier and we shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't affect upstate like this. Or, you know, people are like, no, it has to, you know, all statewide should be good. But, like, you can't, people don't want to say that they can see from both sides and... Yeah, I think you have to be able to have empathy to understand, you know, the, the arguments from both sides and... And Governor Cuomo and his his staff's position, they obviously have to take precaution over everything because nobody will forgive them if there were to be you know another another outbreak or another hundred thousand deaths after the fact. Um, I, I think that their primary concern is going to be to keep the numbers as low as they can, and in a short time frame of three to six months, I think that's probably the right thing to do. And again, back to what I was saying earlier, I think we should try our best to learn from this. If this is like a repeat thing every year, we're going to obviously have to adjust the way we've gone about handling this. And I wouldn't want this to be the new norm every every winter. But I think in a short window, we need to really understand the data and do whatever we can to, to take proper steps. But I also believe that we've completely thrown any sense of fiscal responsibility out the window with the way we're handling this economically. Um, we're just essentially printing money and 
running up debt like we never have before and nobody wants to talk about the future impact that's going to have and i'm not the most qualified person to speak on the macroeconomic effects of it but i know that we're introducing trillions of dollars of debt into a system that otherwise wouldn't have had it so i think we need to be cognizant of the effect that's going to have while also understanding that we have lives for tax exactly and that kind of goes back that could have been the the perfect analogy that i'm using is that, that like I previously stated, like I don't want to be in, in a, a policymaker's position right now to have to weigh the short-term benefits of debt versus the long-term benefits of economics because a lot of people, majority of people, can't see both sides of that argument and they can't understand that. And again, I don't want to have to say something that ends up coming off that I'm insensitive to the people who are actually being affected by this coronavirus and being affected at the most you know extreme ways of being deaf but then you, you, you also have to look at the re very real reality that there is a, a a huge macroeconomic effect of what, that all this yeah. has that that it, it may take years for us to recover from depending on how far this goes yeah no doubt and i think just being aware of that is not a crime you know some people want to torture anyone who yeah. even speaks of the economic impact this is having and you're all of a sudden you're insensitive you don't care about the people that are sick and the families and of course you do but that's just the headline culture we're in and i think we need to be more real and transparent have these conversations and have more thoughtful discourse on things like this so, so what, about, what about you i know like a lot of your stuff getting people into this directory and spreading the word of the directory like you can do so much now on social media and, and the internet that wise but in that way but you you lose out on that face to face meeting with a lot of like these business owners trying to get onto like the directory and a lot of other stuff that you're doing like has it affect how how much has it affected you? Yeah, I think it's tough to. This is obviously not a climate where people are, from a business perspective, looking to spend money and expand. Everyone's kind of in fight or flight right now, looking to just survive and kind of maintain and fix the processes they have right now. I don't think it's exactly a environment where I'm going to bring on a ton of new business, but from the Upstate View directory perspective, um, I'd probably be just reaching out to a lot of people over social media anyway. So that as a, I guess, first intro. So that hasn't really been a big change, but I would like the ability to go, you know, to, to do more of these podcasts in person. I'm going to have to start thinking about how I could build out an infrastructure to do these virtually if I want to put out as much content as I, as I do want to. But um, you know, it hasn't had a tremendous effect on my day-to-day. -day. I've been working out of the apartment now. The Thank You Bader co-working space has been closed for about a month now. So that's that's been tough to get used to just being in the house all day. But overall, it hasn't had a huge effect on what I'm doing. And if anything, I've become more focused the last month because I've had I'm less distractions. Yeah, literally no excuse at all. No excuse to not get things done. I've been, been able to get up early and not really uh, have my attention diverted at all. So. so with what you've explained to me, kind of what your vision is for this directory, I can see just kind of like spit things off the top of my head, and then if they're rational ideas or not, either way, but um, of ways to kind of capitalize on because you're having all of these restaurants, bars, and whatnot to close down. I can only do takeout, I can only do delivery. Like they're they're hurting for money, and the premise from what we've explained before of what view and all the different aspects and different uh, avenues of view was essentially to help drive in revenue for these companies. Are there different, are there other like nuances that you've tried to add or, or thought of to help these businesses in this time that you kind of altered the way view well, is? The original, you know, my master thesis or master app idea, including more of the, you know, physical location 
businesses, but rep bars, restaurants, retail stores. That is kind of separate from what I'm doing with the directory right now in terms of mapping the, the digital space of the creators um, and anyone putting out content online. But on that front, I think people are really pushing to support local companies right now. So I think giving more visibility to the people that are have side hustles that may not be working right now or may be laid off, but they're making products out of their home or they're putting out content like this or they, they can do something remotely, like any of those skills, I think the virus situation has played a big role in me wanting to drive more attention to those people. So I would say that right now, it is, it is an opportune time to try to build something like I am. And even though you might not be like, I'm trying to draw a physical connection between people that are based in the same area um, and putting out things digitally, we may, might not be able to see each other in person. I think there still is a certain context that people get from knowing that somebody is in the same area as them. Mm -hmm. So although you might not be able to like physically link up with a nurse working at a local hospital right now to talk for Nurse Nation or to put out content, you will contextually be able to reach out to her and say, hey, like, let's do a phone call. And you could instantly talk about things related to the area and to you know, local hospitals and you have a better idea of what's going on up here. So it's like creating those connections locally, even if they're not in-person interactions. I think that's, it's still powerful, the effect that this, this current situation is having. So. Whereas like, you know, you brought this example before, if you're not following that person on, Find that person's page on Facebook or Instagram, any sort of social media platform, or you're not friends with someone who shared that post, you may not even know that that even exists just no. at a local level. I mean, just having a directory to saying, okay, hey, I'm looking for someone that does this or someone that is in you know this type of avenue locally. You can do you can type in what you're looking for on Facebook, but then you're bombarded with all this information. Yeah, so just get it just to the local, the localized people. And there's definitely fragmentation of platform. So you have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Pinterest, um, even you know TikTok, podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music. Like, there's a million different platforms where some of this information is siloed, and then on top of each of those platforms is all the specific and um, complexities of those platforms. So you're seeing on Facebook, you're seeing comments, you're seeing every other normal kind of post from you know your aunt's dog and the kids, like things that aren't necessarily related to the services or creatives you're looking for in an area. So I'm kind of abstracting that layer out and creating more of like a social phone book for people that are putting out more branded type content or, you know, business-like ventures rather than just like an individual sharing things about their life. So I'm kind of simplifying things and just trying out the concept to see how, you know, if you're interested in cars or you're interested in music or you're a musician or you have a podcast or you take photos, you're, you're a videographer, like any of those things, I want people to be able to make those connections with people in the area without having to see all the clutter of, you know, the Facebook or the disorganization of Instagram. So it's kind of just tying all those things into one place and uh, letting people get in touch with each other. So someone who their goals and aspirations are so closely tied to social interaction and social media interaction more specifically. You're on every single platform. You obviously study the trends of every platform, try to get ahead of the curve. My question is, what is the main difference? Are you flipping this interview on me right now? Almost. What is the main difference between what we have now in TikTok and what we had back in the day with Vine? I don't think there was is much of one at all. I, I think the Vine was what, 15 seconds only? Yeah. 
yeah, I think and the um, creative tools that have been built on top of TikTok are far more advanced. Uh, the market is much more prime. More people have phone, smartphones now. More younger kids have smartphones. Um, Apple Music, Spotify, all the platforms are allowing more independent songs to go out. So people are doing dances, doing a million different things. People are, you know, playing a bunch of different music. There's way more ways to customize your videos today than there was five years ago. And more kids have phones in their hands. So the, phones in their the, hands. the main reason of why TikTok is flourishing and Vine has been gone for years now, you think it's just yeah. Just how far we've advanced. Society, yeah, I think it's a big, a big timing issue. I think uh, Vine was a little bit ahead of its time to reach the level of scale that TikTok has, mm -hmm. um, for sure. And I think that TikTok's tech and is amazing. Like they're they're pretty flawless in how they've rolled this out, and I think it's a great product. So yeah, I don't think Vine was a bad product by any means. I just think it was a little bit before its time, and people weren't as likely to pull out their smartphone. And just like think about how over time Instagram has lowered. You know, first Facebook, then Instagram and Twitter has lowered the minimum age of, of entry to these to these platforms. Like younger kids are using them, and then on the high side, like even you know, my mother is on TikTok now. And if it wasn't for Instagram and Facebook, my mother would have never gotten TikTok. It's like the first, uh, so I guess it's kind of like a gateway type effect where you know older people migrated to Facebook after the high school kids got done with it and got sick of it. Mm -hmm. Then they went to Instagram, and now it's kind of trickled down to TikTok. So I think that. You know, more people are just more uh, acceptable, or more people are more accepting of a platform like that today than they were five years ago. I think it's a cliche thought, because it's obviously so true that technology expands, diversifies, and enhances at such a rapid pace that you can't keep up with it. But it's so crazy to think about that just 12, 11, 12 years ago, you had to have a college email address to create a Facebook account. Like you had to have that at something.edu just to be able to create a Facebook. And now you got people making fake Facebook accounts, you know, Instagrams, like all this crazy stuff, like parody accounts on Twitter. It's crazy to see I'm just a the long, The period. long tail of I social mean, media. 11 is. years in the technology world is, you know, a million years. But still, I mean, just 11 years in just reality is still crazy. No, I say this all the time, but the things that we take for granted, you know, going away from social a little bit, but just to the technology side, like, if you were to say when we were seniors in high school that in 2020 you'd be able to look at your phone and unlock it with your face, or even the touch print, like, you would have said you're crazy. Like, that's futuristic. Like, that's Jetsons. That's, that's not happening. And today we do it. Like in two days after it came out, we're like, oh, yeah, that's normal. Well, just think about you know? what the top apps were when the first like, iPod Touch came out. The, 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 gu the gun app. We've had this conversation yeah. before. The gun app where you press the button yeah. and it makes the gun noise. The beer drinking app. app. The Zippo app. There, yeah, the, the functionality was not the, I guess, potential usefulness wasn't even known yet at that point. So, And when did we start changing the word that is an emotion of feeling content? To it being content, now a completely different word with a completely different meaning. I don't, I don't know if I've uh, if I've heard like, that has, one as much. Yeah. Like has it like at one point I don't think anything was ever like, oh this is great content. Like using the word content. Oh okay in that regard. Whereas if the same spelling and different syllable pronunciation, it's just being hey I'm content <laughs> yeah. in my situation. Now it's we've completely right. revamped that. It's now it's now. Yeah, it's I never really thought about that. Where it used to be maybe just like material yeah. or information. Now it's like you know you have to yeah, get content. because back uh, ten years ago, two idiots like us weren't sitting in a basement putting out content. People were watching the news. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, so yeah, there's been a lot of evolution and it's moving so fast and it really is tough to keep up with everything. Like I like to think that I mix in a ton of different stuff like every single day, but like at the end of the day, I don't really know. <laughs> half of what's actually going on in the tech social world like there are new things happening every single day mm -hmm. and anyone claiming to know it all is just 
<laughs> is not being truthful with themselves. So would this be the right platform to have like an unsolicited humble brag? For from you for you? I just want I just want to put it out there and not even just for people that I don't know because they won't understand, but just for like our like knit group of friends. I just want to say that the, the social media like branding I was way ahead of that back in 2011. Oh, you were, you and Joe Cantales are two people that were just way out of the curve. I mean, I was what, like 18? I was like, dude, Alpha Squad, gotta make it, gotta make it a brand. If you were well, if you were well funded and if you didn't have other distractions of school and life, you 100% could have made that into something. Oh, absolutely. And at the time, like, none of us, we made fun of you. I mean, I always, I've always supported Hustle and I've tried not to be too, um, you know, fixed mind and stuff like that. But I didn't really understand it to the level you did. And looking back on it, it was an amazing idea. I mean, there's probably three alpha squads right now that yeah. are doing the same thing or, you know, alpha yeah. mentality, alpha life. But I just want to say, humble brag, I was ahead of the branding content game. I was basically Gary. You were. So, you know, Pat has taken a roundabout way to get where he is now. And no one, growing up, I didn't really see him being a nurse, but he, there's many sides of Mr. Fricola and, uh, he definitely, for the record, was way ahead of the game on the social media branding, creating direct-to-consumer type brands. Pat was a thought leader of the area, really was. I didn't know many others doing it. So one day when I'm famous, that's what I'm going for. This will be on record. Pat Fricola, genius. Well, I, I, like to, I like to be a, be a very worldly, very cultured person. Like I said at the beginning, like I kind of wanted to get away from This interview went from very <laughs> scripted to... Um, oh, that's the whole point of it, right? I that's, love that's it. That's the best of it. Um, no, no one's listening anyway. No. I, it's like um, Metro News 1. Just, just Leaky. Shout out Leaky. Um, but, now where's I going? Now you threw me off. Yeah, you're a cultured uh, man. You're, you're very worldly. Oh, see, like I said in the beginning, I kind of wanted to move away from the interview style because sometimes I just don't like talking to yeah. people. So if and I, like, at the end of the day, who actually cares what we're saying? Exactly. But... I try to stay pretty worldly and well-rounded so that if I ever end in the position where I have to have a conversation with somebody, at least I try to have some sort of, you know, have some sort of material to discuss with somebody. But Yeah, I do. I, I think, especially in the beginning, just starting off, like it's not like you're a polished guest frequenting talk shows or I'm this amazing interviewer. I think I have potential to be good, but I think that the a little bit of... Uh, natural uh serendipity or just like banter back and forth is better than a scripted you know it's not like any we're, we're gonna attract a huge following from this interview it's gonna be our family and friends listening and hopefully they like something we have to say and we could gain a few oh, it takes people one listening. Share, dude. but yeah no I, I think i think what we say is valuable but the i guess people like gary we talk about this all the time like overvaluing production value and perfection is very overrated mm. it's just putting stuff out there and reaching the right audience eventually through volume in my opinion but all right anyway we've been talking for a good while now to wrap this up i got some rapid fire questions for you okay, uh, rapid fire bring them up current shows you're streaming during this quarantine uh, netflix designated survivor on netflix jack bauer 2.0 yep. Kiefer sutherland great show it got terrible reviews second third season when i looked up online but whatever i love it it's great is it um, guaranteed for more seasons? Or are the reviews that bad? I don't know. Like I thought it was just a Netflix show. When I looked it up, there was like reviews from like when it was on ABC. It was on like FX or something. Yeah, but I, so I, I, I'm, I'm confused. But either way, I enjoy it. I love it. We're watching that right now. Um, we start. We watched Love Is Blind like four weeks ago. That was so bad that it was just addicting. That was a Netflix show. Um, What's this new uh, Friday Night Lights like football high school football show? Are you watching that? 
Is that the, I think Kara tried to get, is that the All-American? All-American, yeah. I had, Kara said, she watched the first one, she said that I would like it, but we never really got into it. Um, I'm a diehard Friday Night Lights fan, so I don't like anything taking the shine away from that. Like, I'll just go back and watch Friday Night Lights again. It's just, that was great. That was a great show. So what does a typical morning for you look like? Are, are you a routine guy, or are they just random? Every time you ask me this, I always say I have to get back into a routine, and it's been like six months since I told that before, and I still haven't gotten into a routine. So my mornings are usually... Baby's been in a sleep uh, regression. He usually sleeps till 7.30, now it's like five o'clock. So it usually starts with him crying and running into our bed and me like, ugh, the day has to start. And then it turns into me having to force myself to get up out of bed, Carrie yelling at me to get up so I'm not late to work, um, brushing my teeth, grabbing my clothes out of the dryer that I put in there the night before, get the wrinkles out, and then kind of just going to work. So no real morning routine. Yeah, right you've, you've always been someone that's switching shifts all the time. You, you never really get locked into a consistent Monday to Friday, you know. Yeah, no. Wake that's up at the same time. Your weekends, you've worked overnights, you've, you've done it all. Yeah. So I'll give you a pass there. Um, favorite and least favorite thing about living in upstate New York? My favorite thing about living in upstate New York is the change of season. Like, I, everyone's like, oh, my God, I hate the snow. Well, Big yeah, Four Seasons guy, huh? Big Four Seasons, including the pizzeria. Shout out Four Seasons Pizzeria, Marshall, New York. But, uh, yeah, not the hotel. Um, I love, obviously, I, I enjoy, like they say, you can't enjoy the sunshine without the rain. There's something about going through all four seasons. It just makes you have better appreciation for everything. Like, you can't enjoy the summer that much if you didn't have a shitty winter and a shitty spring. And you, can't enjoy the, you can't enjoy the winter. If it's way too hot for me in the summer, I start to sweat. I need the, as soon as it hits 65, the AC in my car is cranking. So, I mean, to me, I enjoy the winter because it's not as hot out. But then I enjoy the summer. It's not as, hot, it's not as cold as no, the summer. I'm with you. I, so I, that, my favorite thing is the four seasons. My least favorite thing is that I always feel like we're behind. We're, we're always in like some sort of like, uh, Jesus, rapid fire to me having to say, um, um, um. My least favorite thing about living in upstate New York is that it literally feels, and the joke is, is that we are the armpit of New York State. It literally sometimes feels like that. Like we have all these rundown factories, like, you know, the, our prices on a lot of things are always crazy and through the roof. Like there's not a lot of, unless you're in like healthcare or um, criminal justice, there's something with computers, there's not a lot of in between of where you can make money in the area. So I think the area, like the poverty level of the areas is a little high for me. Um, but my favorite thing is the seasons. My least favorite thing would be the poverty-stricken area that we are living in. Oh, fair enough. Favorite accounts you're following on social media right now? Whether that's just comedy, just someone that puts out interesting or funny stuff. On a personal level, like my personal Instagram accounts, Barstool, sports, anything that has to be involved with sports. I mean, now it's tough because there are no like real sports going on. Um, there's like this old, uh, what's it called? Old time ball or something like that that kind of shows um, all old like sports highlight clips like that's some of my favorite stuff uh, social media on a personal level for me like I said is news but um, a lot of my news is like sports oriented because I'm a big sports guy um, on a professional level like for Nurse Nation uh, I mentioned her name before Kelly Reap on Twitter she's always sparking great conversation like medical conversations on Twitter um, a lot of times I don't contribute to the conversations it's kind of like just like a sit back and like look to see how people are reacting and interacting. Um, she's involved with what they call uh, bedside chats or chats from bedside. I forget what the, the actual uh, phrases that they use, but like every Monday a different topic and they invite all these different you know Twitter personalities into this conversation to have. Uh, so she's, she's a pretty interesting one to follow on the Twitter side.
Interesting. Uh, I wasn't going to ask this question. This was a late write in, but how will Tom Brady do in Tampa Bay this season? Both of us are Patriots fans over the years. Uh, I think he's going to give it one hell of a shot. I think he's going to have two years down in Tampa. We've got Gronk, a little Jay Howard. Is it going to be like the same fiery line. Brady or more of a retirement tour type deal? Um, I think it's going to be like the kid that was always sheltered in high school and then went away to college, like a party school. I mean, you go 20 years with the, the strict rules, regulations, and, you know, it's all about, you know, winning, winning, winning. And obviously, it's, I mean, it still is about winning with Tom. But now, you know, he's let loose a little bit. He's putting out videos of him blowing the seashell, getting rocking. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting and fun to see this, this version of Brady. We're rambling a little bit. Will Guerrero be allowed on the sideline? You think? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I think I think Tom has is a lot more. Uh, a lot it's more Tom, it's Tom Brady, bro. Exactly. Where is PFRAC and where is Nurse Nation in five years? Um, in five years, hmm, good question. I'd really like to see myself in some sort of education role at some sort of nursing institution, some sort of nursing school. That's always been my goal. Um, where do I see Nurse Nation? Um, I'd like to turn that into something that's more educational. Like I want to create it into a content stream of, you know, CNA skill videos, nursing skill videos. I want it to be a hub of where people can go um, and use it as some sort of viable resource, um, whether it be for your personal um, healthcare career or, you know, like, for me, for example, with our CNA class, there's this great YouTube channel called For Your CNA that shows all the skills and all these great videos. I like to eventually kind of build it to be that, where you know you want to see something about, uh, and that's why the thing with with Voodoo Medic was so you know, such a great idea for me. It was so interesting for me is that you know if you want to see something about combat, um, army combat training for uh, for medics, medic training, uh, if you want to see. Um, how different people handle different situations like an ER or an ICU, like eventually that's what I'd like to build up to be some sort of educational content brand. Love it. So my final question, if you could leave people with one message or piece of advice, either personally or professionally, what would that be? Never stop learning. Never stop gathering information. There's no excuse nowadays with the internet and the, uh, the amount of resources that we have at our fingertips to ever want to stop learning, whether it be uh, for your job, whether it be you know for personal you know, gains, uh, just something that you're just interested in as a hobby, never stop learning. Um, you know, use social media for the good points that it has. You know, Twitter, great source for news. But like I said, always do your due diligence. Um, never take your favorite persona you know, as gospel all the time. Do your due diligence. Never stop learning. Those are the two things I would say. Definitely agree with all of that. Well, thanks, Patrick. Thank you to anyone who was listening. Uh, check out Pat Nurse Nation Media on Twitter, Instagram, he has a podcast. He's putting out stuff all over the place. If you're interested in healthcare and nursing or just following an interesting person, check out Pat Percola and Nurse Nation. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.